Today's scripture comes from Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Now there was famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that now you would make your word live to us. For those of us who are hungry, may you feed us. For those of us who are lost, may you give us direction. For those of us who are flagging in faith, would you give us a picture of your glory and your faithfulness. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm on the team here. And it's so good to again gather with each of you here this morning. To those of you who have been following along in our First Corinthians series, you'll notice that today we're not in the book of First Corinthians. As John mentioned a few weeks ago, aren't we a church that preaches expositarily through the Bible? Some of you may be rightly asking, is John Briars a liar? <laughs> I'm so glad I managed to sneak that line in. <laughs> well, rest assured, you can ask Sarah for more details, but for me, no. <laughs> this morning, we're going to Genesis because we'll be starting on our new summer series. It doesn't feel like summer, but we're declaring it in faith. We're starting our new summer series titled Living by Faith. For the past year, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, zooming in on a particular letter written to a particular church in a particular time and place. And rest assured, we're going to come back to finish 1 Corinthians in the fall. But for the next 14 weeks, Lord willing, we'll be doing something a little bit different. We're going to be zooming out. 
Zooming out and looking at how God's people lived by faith in different times and places. The plan is this. In June, we're going to be looking at stories in the New Testament and learning about how God's people looked forward to Christ. And then in, in July, we're going to be doing a deep dive into the Christology of Hebrews so that we can see Christ more clearly. And then in August, we'll be, we're, the plan is to study portions of Acts to learn about how God's people lived in light of Christ. Looking forward to Christ, seeing Christ more clearly, and living in light of Christ. I don't know about you, I'm really excited about this. Our prayer is that God would use His Word to just expand our imaginations, to help us to, to see how different people lived by faith in different times and places so that we can have, so that we can be encouraged, stirred up to live by faith in our time and our place. So with that, let's get started. Today we're looking at Genesis 12. It's the beginning of the story of Abram, who God later renames as Abraham. So in this sermon, I'm going to be using it interchangeably. We have three points for today. What faith looks like, what faith does not look like, and God's faithfulness. What faith looks like, what faith does not look like, and God's faithfulness. If you're the kind of person who likes punchy, alliterative points, you can see it as faith, faithlessness, and faithfulness. Faith, faithlessness, and faithfulness. So let's get into it. Our first point, what faith looks like. Look, let's look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's so much here to unpack in these verses, but before we do, just as important as what God says in this passage is the context of, what God, of how God comes into the picture. Or the context of the 11 chapters that come before. So we're going to do a quick recap of chapters 1 to 11. I have a snazzy diagram up here because I know how much you guys love diagrams, so here we go. In chapters 1 and 2, we start with God creating a world that is good, and humans who are very good. But then we have the fall. Adam and Eve sin against God by disobeying Him and are cast out of the Garden of Eden. Chapter 4, one of their sons, Cain, kills another son, Abel. And then we have the story of Lamech, who, who sees Cain as a role model. He boasts that if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. As we read the chapters 1 to 5, we see this downward spiral of violence and wickedness and sin continues and God sends a flood as judgment. But even then, humanity doesn't learn its lesson and people come together to try to become gods themselves. What do they do? They, they try to build the Tower of Babel to reach heaven and make a name for themselves. Throughout these 11 chapters, even in this summary, we can see it, can't we? Every time we think humanity has hit rock bottom, humanity manages to dig further. Because that's what sin does. And before I go on, I just want to point out 
that in many ways that can feel like our context today. Sin is everywhere and sin affects everyone. Every day there are reports of sin and shootings and crime and war and injustice. We experience hurt and suffering, but let's be honest, we are responsible for hurt and suffering too. And when we see the scale of sin and suffering in the world, that will drive us to one of two things. It will either drive us to despair or to dependence. And the first thing Genesis 12 teaches us is to depend on God because God is at work. You see, God is at work even when we don't see His fingerprints. God is at work even when we don't see Him. And God calls us to depend on Him to depend on His light, which shines brightest in the darkness. And that's what's happening here. In the darkness of sin in the world, when when the world seems, seems to hit rock bottom, when everything seems lost, God enters the picture. God enters and God speaks. Look at what He says in In verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In the the darkness of sin of chapters 3 to 11, God enters the story and God speaks to Abram. He calls Abram to leave his country, his family, and his father's house, which, if we're being honest, doesn't sound like such a big deal for many of us today. Many of us have left all of these things to come to Vancouver. When my family and I moved to Vancouver three years ago, it was difficult, but we knew to bring a rain jacket because everyone had told us about Raincouver. We knew that our family and friends could visit us. This was before COVID. And, and we knew that even then we could keep in contact through, through WhatsApp and FaceTime and Zoom and, and email. And we knew that if anything were to happen to us, we had friends or friends we could call upon. We had some savings and we're in a city that has hospitals and so on that we could go to for help. They wouldn't turn us away. So we hoped. No one turned us away. Just let me make clear. But as we come to Abram, well, and this is something we need to know because that's really important. Abram had none of that. His country, his family, and his father's house, these concentric circles that move in, they re- represented all his security and society, all sense of control and community. And perhaps this morning, that's something you can relate to. As you wrestle through God's call for your life, See, the last words of verse 1 are so important, aren't they? To the land that I will show you, God says. See, God gave Abram enough information to know he had to leave, but not enough for Abram to know where he was going. Or even if he would ever see his family again. And before we go on, I need to interrupt the story to talk a bit about how God calls us to something. Because you see, God might speak directly to us, like like He did with Abram, through perhaps an impression or a dream or even an audible voice. But when we talk about God speaking directly to us like that, 
we need to be so, so, so careful to discern, is God really speaking to us or am I speaking to myself? You see, God can speak to us, but He also tells us that anything that we think He's telling us needs to be understood, discerned in the context of prayer. You don't just ask for a word from God, we ask Him through prayer to help us be sensitive to His Spirit. To give us the counsel of trusted Christians. And to give us wisdom to make sense of that counsel and advice and to make sense of our circumstances. And we need to hold up that call, that subjective call against Scripture to make sure it doesn't go against anything Scripture says because God will never contradict Himself and Scripture is God's objective word. In fact, when, when we think about what God calls us to do, the, the first place we should start is His word. Because God's calling for our lives, a large part of it, is already in His Word. For example, we know that God calls us to follow Jesus and become more like Him. To love Him with everything we've got. To love others as we love ourselves. To forgive as we've been forgiven. And to fight injustice. The list goes on and on. And any subjective sense we have of God speaking to us must be held up against God's objective Word that He's already spoken to us. You know, I get this a lot. People, people come up and say, I don't know what God is calling me to. It's here. So Christ City, what is God calling you to? What is God calling you to in the big decisions in your life? And what is God calling you to in the responsibilities of everyday life? And how are we responding? God has a calling for each of us, showed, laid out in His Word, but also laid out in our hearts, in our giftings, through, through prayer, promptings of the Spirit, counsel from others, circumstances. All these things come together as God slowly reveals His calling for us. But even as, even as we work out our calling, this passage shows us that as we respond to God's calling, we need to get rid of the idol of control that many of us have. When I say many of us, I mean especially me. For those of you who are here during worship night, you would know that, and I shared this, I struggle with the idol of control. I'm the guy who needs to know what happens in the end. It just happened last night. Jess and I were watching this movie on Netflix, and I said, stop. I, I moved it to the end. I could see how it was going to end. I said, now I can watch in peace. <laughs> I don't know if you're laughing because it's just me. <laughs> anyway. You see, following God's call will always cost us something. And it's a struggle because we don't know what's, what it's going to cost us. And so we need to look not at the cost of the call, but at the one who's calling us. Instead of saying, how do I know? We need to say, God, you know. And we trust you and help us in, 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 in the ways that we don't trust you because you are trustworthy and you are good. And then we ask God to give us such a vision of His glory and His goodness that we want nothing more than to trust Him. 
Because he knows better than I do, and we want to be used by him to glorify him and to bless others. And and that's what God goes on to tell Abram in verse 2. He says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. We see, see it here, don't we? God promises four things to Abram. In verse 1, he promises him land. And then in, the, in our verses, he, he promises to make him a great nation. To have a special relationship where he protects Abram. And then to use him to bless others. It's like the top four things that people at the time would have wanted. And so, even as we go through that, we need to make one thing clear. This passage is not about the prosperity gospel. This is not a prosperity church, so I know I'm preaching to the converted, but I'm going to say it again anyway. This passage is not about trusting God, that God will give us health and wealth and everything we want. That's not what's happening here. God calls Abram to obey him so that God may use Abram to bring about God's purposes, not Abraham's desires. You see, God calls Abram to obey him, not to trust God to give him what he wants. You see, we don't trust God to give us what we want, but we trust him to give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. So that he may use us to bless others and bring him glory. Because God has already blessed us. He has already blessed us most supremely in the giving of His Son. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.20. Paul writes this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, Him being Jesus Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. See, Christ City, if all we want from God is health and wealth in this world, we have too high a view of this world and too low a view of God. Because God has given us His Son. And His Son is far more precious than anything this world has to offer. And because God has already given us His Son, we can trust Him that everything will work out for our good. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He also not also with Him graciously give us all things? You see, Christ City, as it was with Abraham, so it is with us. As we follow God's call and what God, and what God calls us to do, there will be seasons when we can't see God. There will be seasons when we can't see His fingerprints and where we'll wonder if He loves us or if He's even there. Christ City, know this, He is there. In fact, He is here. In times where you can't see God, look to the cross. See God's display for, of love for us displayed up on that cross. Look up there to the cross and know that He loves you and everything will work out for good. Claim that by faith. So back to our story. As After God's call, we see Abram's response in verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abram does, and the author is very careful in his wording to show us this, that Abram does exactly what God called him to do. Verses 7 to 9, if you don't have time to unpack, we see Abram continuing to obey God and to respond to God in worship. It's interesting because some of, us, some of you may have spotted it already. We know absolutely nothing about the first 75 years of Abram's life. We know not, absolutely nothing about his life until God steps in and calls him and Abram responds in faith. And in some ways, that's a pretty good way to review and plan each day, isn't it? You know, at night or in the morning when you think about the day that has just happened and the day that is to come, asking myself, have I been faithful to the things God has called me to? Did I spend my day doing what God called me to do or what I wanted to do? And as I, and as I think about my day and week ahead, Asking God, is my plan for tomorrow his plan for my tomorrow? See, the word to describe Abram's response here is faith. That's how the, the, the writer of Hebrews interprets this whole story. Look, look at chapter 11, verse 8 of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, as with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see, Abram is held up throughout the Bible as the model of what it means to live by faith. He had faith in God by trusting God, obeying him, and looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. And so this Sunday, as we kick off our series on living by faith, here's a definition of what it means to live by faith. Living by faith is trusting God, obeying Him, and living with confidence that He will keep His promises. I'll say that again. Living by faith is trusting God, obeying Him, and living with confidence that He will keep His promises. But do we trust His promises? Do we trust God in what He has already revealed to us? Do we obey Him? You see, true faith is not just saying that I have faith in God. True faith will always result in action. It's not just enough to hear God say, leave everything and follow me. Faith means leaving everything to follow Him. But when you put it that way, when we read verses 1 to 9, it's so easy for our takeaway from, from this passage to be to turn the spotlight on ourselves, isn't it? To turn the spotlight by, ask, by living a life of us constantly asking ourselves, do I have enough faith? Is my faith good enough? Am I good enough? But as, as all, of we, all, of, all of us know, living in the spotlight, living Constantly asking ourselves, do I have enough faith? Is my faith good enough? Am I good enough? Is exhausting and, to be honest, very demoralizing. 
Because living in the spotlight, shining the spotlight on ourselves is just a constant reminder of all our imperfections. All our failures to live and act and have faith as we should. Which is why we're so thankful that it doesn't just stop at verse 9. We have verses 10 to 20. Which show us what faith does not look like which is our second point for this morning, what faith does not look like. Let's look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister and that it, may, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Notice first here that the family was part of God's call for Abram. You see, following God's call means trusting him even when things don't turn out the way we want or even the way we think they should. Following God's call means not saying what's best for me, but your will be done. Because history is full of people who followed God's call until things didn't go according to plan. And then they took things into their own hands. And that's exactly what's happening here, isn't it? God promises that he will protect Abram. And Abram has this beautiful response of faith in verse 4. But then at the first sign of trouble, Abram takes things into his own hands. And now, if we're being honest, we could make the argument that Abram is just being practical. He's being phenomenally selfish. I saw some of you shaking your heads even as you're reading that passage. The number of times he refers to just himself is mind-blowing, but he's also being practical, isn't he? The thinking is this, my wife is beautiful. They'll want my wife, so they'll kill me. How do I make sure they don't kill me? It, it's, it's asking the question, what's best for me? And I need to be clear here to all of you practical-minded people, there's nothing wrong with being practical. But the problem is this, what do we do when what is practical comes into conflict with what is obedient? It's our first instinct to plan or to pray. What do we do when everyone around us advises us or even demands that we do what is not according to God's will? Do we respond with trusting God, or do we take matters into our own hands? And then see what happens as a result in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. 
Christ city, we must be clear here, there are consequences to disobedience. God is a gracious God, but there are consequences. You see, because of disobedience, Abram blows up his life. He blows up his wife's life. He blows up his marriage. And he blows up even the lives of those around him. You see, Pharaoh has taken Sarah as his wife, meaning that Sarah has been forced into adultery. Pharaoh rebukes them in front of everyone. Everyone knows that this whole plague is Abram's fault. It's his fault for his cowardice, for his betrayal of his wife, and they get thrown out. See, in the culture of honor and shame, Abram is shamed deeply, both in private and in public. And what makes this even worse, if it could get even worse, is that if you read ahead to chapter 20, this whole shenanigans happens all over again. You see, Christ, as we think about how we live by faith, we must ask ourselves, how do we respond to imperfections in others? In other Christians? And how do we respond to imperfections in ourselves? Because constantly being in the spotlight is exhausting and demoralizing. Because we are all like Abraham, aren't we? We are all imperfect. Our faith is not good enough and will never be good enough. And so as we read these passages, turn the spotlight away from yourself and onto the faithfulness of God. See, God calls us to have faith, but the key to faith is not turning the spotlight on ourselves, but turning the spotlight on God's faithfulness because He is faithful. And that's our third point for this morning, God's faithfulness. See, again, in in verses 17 to 20, some of us would have noticed it already, haven't we? God's faithfulness to His promises to Abraham. See, God curses Pharaoh for dishonoring Abram, and Abram and Sarah are released, alive and with all their possessions. You see, and if you read on on, about the entire account of Abram's life, you read many examples of Abram's imperfections and his lack of faith. But interwoven with each instance of imperfection, of lack of faith, is God's constant, persistent faithfulness to his promises. Eventually from Abram comes a great nation, the nation of Israel. But it doesn't just stop there. From Abram comes Jesus Christ. The writer Matthew opens his gospel with this line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God fulfills his promise to Abraham in a way that Abraham could not have imagined. From Abram comes Jesus Christ, through whom all the nations are blessed, both Jews and non-Jews. Look at Galatians 3 verse 7, where Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 
God's faithfulness is most beautifully displayed in Jesus Christ, who came as the most glorious, magnificent, supreme, precious blessing the world has ever had and will ever have. And all of us who have put our faith in Christ are considered descendants of Abraham too. And so we receive the blessings God promised to Abraham that are fulfilled and being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, Abraham was not a perfect man. But yet God used his faith to bless the nations. Because God in his grace uses imperfect people like you and me as his instruments of his faithfulness to bless those around us. And we need to be careful here. This should not burden us because God doesn't need us to fulfill his promises. But isn't it exciting that God would use me, that God would use you to be an instrument of his faithfulness to bless others in a way that you can't even imagine. And not just that, this should fill us with thankfulness as we reflect on how God has used the faith of others like Abraham, but also others around us to bless us in our journey of faith. And I would encourage all of us to spend some time this week reflecting on, on God's faithfulness. But more than that, to reflecting on, how, on the people of faith in our lives, imperfect as they may be, to be an instrument of His own faithfulness to us. This past week, uh, our family had the privilege of spending time with, with the CG led by Paul and Ruth and Grant and Rachel. So we got to try farmer's sausage for the first time. Ingo brought homemade, okay, I need help with this, Veronique? Ver <laughs> Someone help me, you know? <laughs> Correct? Veronique. Okay. We learned that Ursula and Gisela are sisters, which explains a lot. <laughs> but also through, through the stories that people shared, we learned a bit about our heritage. We learned about the faithfulness of the many who gathered in this building long before Christ City even existed. We learned about how many of us in Christ City, but also elsewhere in Vancouver, are today direct beneficiaries of the faithfulness of those who have gathered in this very room before us. In a culture that is obsessed with the new, let us take time to be thankful for those who have come before us. And I came away from that evening full of farmer's sausage, but also full of a profound sense of thankfulness. Thankfulness for the heritage of our church and the faithfulness of the many, some of whom are still sitting here today, and of those who have come before us. If you've not yet heard these stories, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'd be happy to connect you with someone who does. I'd be happy to connect you with someone who can share, who can help you connect with the story of our today, with the story of those of yesterday. 
And I tell you, it will be well worth your time. If you bring this sermon to a close, over the coming weeks, as we look at how people have lived by faith, we'll see that we have much to learn from them. Yes, we do. But we'll see they're also imperfect. The Bible does not shy away from the imperfections, which is one reason why we know the Bible to be true. I wouldn't write my imperfections to my story. But God would. Because the point is not to shine the spotlight on them, just as it's not to shine the spotlight on ourselves. The Bible calls us to shine the spotlight on God's faithfulness. And then to put our faith in Him as His faithfulness is most supremely displayed in Jesus Christ. You see, in the midst of the sin and brokenness of today, in the midst of the darkness of sin, God's light shines. Because Jesus entered our story. And He entered to change our story. He came to live the life of perfect, faith, perfect faithfulness that we could never live so that He could be the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's stand as we respond to God's word.